Welcome to our Good Friday service. Welcome to you in person and everyone joining us online. We're really thankful to be gathered together in person and online, virtually, doing what really the church has been doing for over 2,000 years. What we're doing tonight is we're participating in something that's been happening for over 2,000 years as the church has set aside the Friday right before Easter, as a time of remembrance, a time of reflection on all that Jesus did for us in his sacrifice on the cross. And tonight, what we're going to be doing is reflecting on the seven last words that Jesus spoke from the cross. The seven last statements, the seven last phrases. You know, at one point, Peter, to one of Jesus' disciples, he said to Jesus, where, where can we go? You are the one who has the words of life. And even on the cross, in the midst of agony, in his death, Jesus is speaking life. And what we're going to do tonight, we're going to go through seven different reflections on each of these phrases. And at the end of our time, at the end of, our, of the reflections, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper communion together. And if you haven't gotten one of those uh, communion cups on your way in, you can go ahead and do that now. And if you're at home, I want to invite you to grab some of those elements and get those ready as well. You know, some bread and crackers and some wine or juice, and that will uh, be just fine. Get those things ready. And our hope tonight is that we would all, all of us would leave here having received a profound reminder, a profound reminder of all that God has done, and, the, and really the reason why we can call Good Friday good. And so let's pray, and we'll kick this night off. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your love for us, for the ultimate sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Lord, that you came down you met us where we are at, and you did for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And to, so tonight, Lord, we, we turn our hearts, our minds to your final evening and all that it contains and pertains to us. Lord, we, I pray, God, that you would push down deep the significance, the implications of not only what you said, but what you did. And so we bow our heads in humility and we lift our hands in praise to you, God, for who you are and what you have done. Well, friends, uh, tonight we're going to be sharing the words of Jesus. And uh, the first words that we're going to be talking about tonight uh, come from Luke 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
And this is one of those phrases that to me, as someone who's grown up in church, like a lot of you have, and been around for a while, we hear this so often that we can become numb to the situations. We can hear this and go, oh yeah, Jesus said that. It's part of Easter. Awesome. We read it. We move on. But I want us to take a moment to think about how weird this phrase was. This is one of those Jesus phrases that when you stop and think about it, makes no sense from a human perspective. Jesus was 100% human, and let me tell you what was going on around Jesus. And in fact, I'm going to ask you to put yourself on the cross just for a moment. I'm going to ask you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes, and I want you to think of this question. How would you feel if they'd nailed you to a cross? One of the most painful ways to die in history, to be executed as a criminal. They'd spit on you. They'd torn your hair from your face or your head. They were gambling for your clothes. They were mocking you. And they'd done so, many of them done so, knowing that it was unjustified. They'd been there at Pilate's trial where he'd said, this man has done nothing wrong, and yet they still killed you. Can you imagine what you would feel? I would be angry, furious, over the top. And not only did Jesus have a human heart, he had godly ability. It would have been the greatest I told you so in history for him to come down off of the cross and go, oh yeah, king, that's right, let me show you. You can imagine, that's what I would have done, if I can be honest. That's what I would have done. But Jesus does something completely different. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It showcases Jesus' heart. And tonight's a somber night, but I'm reminded in joy that Jesus' heart is a heart full of compassion for those that are lost. It's a heart full of compassion for those that are wandering, for those that have wandered. It's a heart that in human must have been tempted to be angry, but his godliness allowed him to be compassionate. That's the kind of God that we serve. So tonight we remember what Jesus did. And he did so out of compassion. We're reminded that God's heart is compassionate for the lost. And if you think back towards last Easter, and maybe this year has been a great year for your spiritual journey, and you've come here going, this has been a great year, praise God. The God of compassion looks on you and smiles at you. But for some of you in this room and online and outside, you may be looking at me saying, Tim, this year was not a good spiritual year. I've wandered a lot. I'm giving faith a second chance tonight. But I've wandered, and we start to wonder, how does God view me right now? I want to tell you that the same Jesus that could look at the people that mocked him, that blasphemed him, that spit on him, that tore his beard, he looked on them with compassion. He looks upon you with compassion as well. I hope that's encouraging. But I was reminded even as I sat in my chair there, and I was just convicted of a thought that I had, which is that God wants me to have a heart of compassion as well. Can I be honest and vulnerable, and maybe you guys can relate with me? I find it really easy to hate the church. I find it really easy. I find it really easy to hate members of the church. In fact, sometimes I feel like I like it. I like avoiding people. I like running away. I like to look at people and gossip. I like to avoid the people I dislike. I like to divide. I find the drama in that almost enticing as a human being. And I've been convicted over this last week, and as I've been studying this passage, that that God forgives us when we have that heart, and he's calling us to have the same heart. I don't know where that strikes you tonight, but friends, I want to tell you this. The God of compassion has compassion on you, has compassion on me, and he's calling us to have compassion on others as well. 
Let's not be people of division. Let's not be people of avoidance. Let's be people that understand and come together. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your heart of compassion. Jesus, give us your heart as well. In Jesus' name. The words that Jesus that I'm going to be going over are from verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were being crucified next to Jesus was hurling insults at Jesus, saying, aren't you the Messiah? Can't you save us and yourself? But the other criminal rebuked him, said, don't you fear God? We are being punished and are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives fair compensation for their time, that is a wage. When a person receives recognition for service and high achievement, that is an award. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy, that is a prize. But when a person is incapable of earning a wage, when they deserve no award, or they win no prize, and yet receive a gift anyway, that is grace. That is the picture of God's unmerited favor and the central meaning of the second words of Jesus on the cross. The Gospels describe the crucifixion, but only Luke's account describes the conversation Jesus had with the two criminals on either side of him. In fact, the first person Jesus spoke to on the cross was not John, not Mary, his mother. It was a criminal. Why? Perhaps it's to help us to relate to the story and the setting. The two criminals were sinners, everyday people, just like you and me. The first criminal joins the crowd and begins insulting and taunting Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the second criminal rebukes him. Don't you fear God? We are being punished justly and getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Jesus' response to the criminal offers him grace and rewards his faith with a gift. We, too, receive God's grace and his free gift of salvation, no strings attached. Like the criminal who was not in any position to do anything for God, he was literally at the end of his life. All he could do was believe and receive. Thankfully for you and me, that is enough. We, too, have the same opportunity to believe and receive God's free gift of salvation. No strings attached. Good evening. My name is Kim. Now we come to the third word of Christ from the cross. Jesus is speaking to his mother Mary, who's standing at the foot of the cross, and his beloved disciple John is there as well. And we read in John's gospel, chapter 19, verses 26 through 27, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. At first glance, I thought this seemed kind of odd, especially the way Jesus addresses his own mother, Mary, because he doesn't refer to her as mother. And he also doesn't say John's name or even call him brother. But I think that's because he's not speaking to them simply as a son or simply as a friend, but as their Lord. They're such simple words and I think really easy to gloss over. And honestly, they don't get quoted as much as some of the other words that we're going to hear tonight. They're not as well known. Um, but yet they're so profound. And I think the implication for us is massive because these words show us the very heart of God. What struck me about these words is how deeply personal they are. I can't even imagine the depth of emotion that Jesus' mother endured as she witnessed her son, the Son of God, hanging there on that cross. As a mother myself, I have two kids. I imagine she must have been feeling Jesus's pain as if it were her own. And the depth of sadness and grief coursing through her body must have felt immeasurable. Yet, in this moment of Jesus's own extreme suffering, he models to her the power of love, and he spoke to his mother for one last time. He saw her grief, and before he breathed his last breath, he transferred her care over to his beloved disciple, John. This simple phrase shows us what love looks like because love pays attention. That's what Jesus did. He recognized the personal need his mother was experiencing, and he covered it. This is a reminder for us as well, a reminder that we are fully seen, we are fully known, and we are fully loved by God. Even in the most painful and unimaginable of circumstances, 
even when we don't have the words to fully express the depth of our suffering out loud, Jesus sees us and he loves us in the most personal of ways. Jesus is looking down at the cross, not just at his mother, but at you and at me and saying, I see your pain. I know you are hurting. I have felt it, and I will provide for you. Another way that Jesus shows us his personal love is through the gift of relationship and community that we see here. He says, this is your new son, and this is your new mother. Jesus is creating a new community, a loving, caring, sustaining family beyond our own family of origin. We see Jesus demonstrate the intent for the church family in the way he established the caring relationship between John and Mary. What a beautiful picture of our call as a church body to step in for one another when there is a need or a suffering or when a loss has taken place. I hope this image sticks with us for a while. God's love, God's compassion, God's tenderness, and his personal concern for Mary and for you and for me in our pain. May we not miss this subtle yet profound lesson from this phrase and see the Father's great display of love for all of us. Hi, I'm James, and um, I have the fourth word from Jesus on the cross, and that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the scene here is that Jesus, it's in the ninth hour of the day, so Jesus had been on the cross for three hours at that point, and it is um, the hour of his death, so he is at the very, very end of his life, and um, at the sixth hour is when he was crucified, and that's when they cast lots for his clothing. And uh, at this point, he has people who are passing by who are, are shouting out at him and mocking him and saying things like, you know, you're supposed to be the Messiah. If you're so, if you're the Messiah, why don't you come down off the cross? If you come down off the cross, well, I'll believe in you and it'll all be okay. And they're all laughing about it. And then the religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, were there as well. The, the, the individuals who had condemned him to death were there. And they were, they were joining in with the mocking. And they were saying, you know, you're supposed to be the son of David. You know, you're supposed to be the Messiah. If you are so favored by God, why don't you have him rescue you? And that's when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that would have shocked the religious leaders there because that is a direct quotation from one of David's Psalms. Psalm 22 starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And um, it would have been very interesting because those, those religious Jews who would have had that passage committed to memory and inside their heart would have been able to recall portions of that, like verse 7 that said, Psalm 22, verse 7 said, 
All who see me deride me. They sneer, they shake their heads, saying, Turn him over to the Lord. Let him save him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Or later on in the passage, in verse 16, where he says, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have, has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, but they look at me and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. And so a thousand years before this event, David, King David, who Jesus was a direct descendant of, and they were mocking for referring to himself as the son of David, is quoting something that they didn't even realize was a prophecy. And they're like, hold up. Everything that David talked about in that passage is taking place right here. And I think that that gives us a really incredible picture of the character of God. Because when we think of God, it can be tough because, you know, he's like this all-powerful, all-loving, disembodied mind or something. But this is God in the flesh. This is the incarnation of God in the flesh. And we get to see what God is like at the very end when he's suffocating to death on a cross after being rejected and humiliated and tortured and abandoned by his friends and mocked by the people that he spent his life ministering to. He's still teaching the truth and he's still illuminating what is taking place. That's his character, that's who he is. My name's Haley, and I will be doing the fifth word of Jesus, which is, I thirst. It has been now 18 hours since Jesus was seized in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he has been nailed to the cross for hours as well, and is nearing his death. And through this immeasurable pain, this loss of blood, and severe dehydration, Jesus speaks, I thirst. And although we see this phrase appear only in John 19, 28, it is significant. Jesus' crucifixion is filled with tokens of symbolism that hearken deep into the tradition of every Jew, and this phrase is no different. John even alerts us to this, adding, he said this to fulfill scripture. Um, and very similar to this, the previous phrase that we just heard, this one also harkens back to David. In Psalm 69, King David cries out to God for rescue, saying, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Here, in this moment of such great suffering, Jesus is echoing the pleas of King David. And yet, in this psalm, amongst David's plea for rescue and cry at the injustice he has experienced, rings a solemn resolve that Yahweh is God, a God who is sovereign, yet hears the needy, and who is worthy of praise. This is David who fled for his life for years in the wilderness before ascending to his rightful throne over Israel. 
And this is the king who God made a covenant with, saying, I will be a father to him, and he shall be my son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And it is this king's line, as we just heard, that the Messiah was prophesied to come out of. How ironic that these words of David are spoken as Jesus hangs below a sign declaring, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. For it is Jesus in this act who is restoring the relationship of that covenant that through Jesus, God might be father to us all and that we all might be daughters and sons. After Jesus says, I thirst, a group of people take a sponge soaked in sour wine or pasca, which was a common alternative to water and actually was an alcoholic. So unlike if you guys are familiar with the story where Jesus refuses to have alcohol before he's put on the cross as to take nothing that would dull the pain, this is a different drink. Um, and they put this alternative to water and lift it up to Jesus on a hyssop branch. This sour wine soaked on a sponge would offer just enough hydration to wet Jesus' throat. Hyssop is actually the same branch that the Israelites used to smear the blood from the Passover lamb on their doorways. It was also used to sprinkle blood from sacrifices, and in this way, the hyssop branch was the conductor of salvation. As Jesus makes his final request hanging from the cross, he cries out with the agony of David's psalm, but as the willing servant who will soon become the way of salvation. He endured the pain and shame of the cross, longing to welcome us as sons and daughters of God. I thirst. These words would bring just the smallest relief to David's or to Jesus's parched throat and preparation to declare his next words, which would establish the greatest victory in history. Well, good evening. My name is John Haynes, and I lead a life group here at Seacoast Church. It's an honor and a privilege to bring you the uh, words of the living and the true God. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19.30. What exactly was finished? You guys ever thought about that when he makes that statement? Many, many things were finished on the cross that day. Uh, but just a few things for your consideration. Uh, one, our record of sin was finished, nailed to the cross. Two, working for God's favor is finished. And three, the fear of death, finished all canceled. First of all, the record of sin. The Bible says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103.12. The east... The, that's west. East-west. It's a long ways. If our record of sin is gone, if it's finished, we don't need to be embarrassed. We don't need to be ashamed. We can live free indeed. Amen? Mm -hmm. Number two, working for God's favor. 
Boy, this is a tough one. Hebrews has an interesting verse for us. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore labor to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews 4, 10 and 11. God is calling us to labor, to rest, to strive, to work at resting. Why? Because it's so hard to rest in the finished work of cross of Jesus on the cross. Our tendency is to want to earn God's favor. But the gospel says it's finished. And lastly, the fear of death is finished. Boy, that couldn't be a more timely topic than this last year. The Bible says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All of us are afraid of dying in some way, shape, or form, but the Bible teaches us that we don't need to be afraid of death. So what's the implication of that? How do we live that out? Well, everybody has to work that out on their own. But if I told you today, you will never die, that would probably change the way you live the rest of your life. And that's some good news. So whether it's our record of sin, whether it's working for God's favor, whether it's fear of death, and many other things Jesus accomplished, it is finished. But the big question is, is it finished for you? Do you know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior? And if you know him, are you living in light of the finished work of the cross? I'd encourage you to think on these things. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name's Matt Jarvanen, and I'm here to bring the seventh word of Jesus, which is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So when Matt gave me this passage, uh, I had a lot of different thoughts and um, wasn't sure which I would share, but as I meditated on the passage, I felt God saying, just listen to this and meditate on this until you feel something. And whatever you feel and whatever you feel me putting on your heart, that's what you should share. So I did. I was in the shower and um, something hit me and I want to share it with you. And so I invite you uh, to reflect on this and to meditate on this and to invite the Spirit to speak to you in whatever way um, he's needing to speak to you. So here's the heart of it. God in Christ shows us that the way to redemption is to confront death and hand our life over to God. God in Christ shows us that the way to redemption is to confront death and hand our life over to God. So reflect with me on the first part. And God, would you re reveal to us what we need to see in our own hearts here? Jesus confronted death by going to the cross. Where in your life is God inviting you to confront death? 
what in your life needs to die. Where in your life is the greatest pain? Where in your life are you most terrified? Where in your life is the greatest suffering? And are you willing to confront that now with God's help? Now, hopefully, God's revealed something to you. And here's the second part. Are you willing to let it go? Are you ready to hand it over to God? If you're like me, some of you might be feeling yourself gripping. Some of you might be thinking, I have to hold on. If I let it go, it'll die. So are you willing to let it die? That God might give you a glorious new life in his hands. Some of you might feel that you won't know who you are if you aren't holding on to this. Are you willing to find out who you'll become if this is taken off your hands? Some of you might be saying, I deserve this for what I've done. Are you willing to let Christ's sacrifice cleanse you of even that? His hands are open. Will you let him take it? We can't skip over Friday. We can't skip over the cross. We can't skip over death. But if we face it, and if we hand it over, we have a faithful God who is strong enough to hold it and who will transform it into new life. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for how you face death for us. And thank you that your hands are strong enough to carry our burdens, to carry our death, to carry our sin, to carry our pain. And thank you that you have the power to transform it into new life. Amen. So what we've heard are seven statements that Jesus spoke from the cross. Seven statements, seven phrases, seven words that still to this day speak to you and I right here, right now. And we now turn our attention to communion, to the Lord's Supper, where we see the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, which two speak words over you and I. 
his body, his blood speak words. You see, before Jesus was arrested, he spent some time and he got the guys together, the disciples, and they were in the upper room and they were gathered together for the Passover supper. And in that meal, during that time, Jesus took a meal that for centuries, centuries had all had been all about remembering God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt and taking them into the promised land. And he took a meal that had been pointed to that one thing and he turned it all around. And he said, from now on, when you do this, think of me. Do this meal in remembrance of me. And that's where we are today, friends. We are going to partake in communion and the Lord's Supper. And we are doing this in remembrance of all that Jesus did for us, all that he did to us on that cross. You see, it's the, it's the body and the blood on our behalf, the blood bringing forgiveness of sins. His body, which we find out later in scripture, was we were on that cross too that we died when, when Jesus died on the cross. What happened to him on that cross happened to us too. And we were remembering what he accomplished. I know that if you're like me, of course, there's going to be those moments where, I, I don't, what have I done to deserve this kind of love? What have I done to, be, to I, don't, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel worthy to take this. And the mistake that can happen there is that we, we think we have to get ourselves worthy. We got to get ourselves good, good enough. How ironic that we think we have to get ourselves worthy in order to celebrate something that, com that commemorates Jesus making us worthy. It's ironic. If you're feeling unworthy, this meal is for you. You struggle, you stumble, you sin, this meal is for you. We do this in remembrance of him. We don't do this in remembrance of us. He said, do this in remembrance of me, <laughs> not in remembrance of you and your sacrifice for me. Jesus says, no, do this in remembrance of me, my sacrifice for you. And so we eat and uh, we celebrate not our unfinished work for God, our unfinished and ongoing work for God. No, we've, we've eaten and we celebrate to remember the finished work of Jesus for us. And so if you have your little cup here, if you're at home, you can go ahead and grab that bread or that cracker. During the meal, Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so let us eat to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so we drink this cup. We do this in remembrance 
of the once and for all forgiveness that we have been given in Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Christ that brings us forgiveness. So we are no longer dirty and distant people. His blood brings us close. It makes us clean. So let's raise our glass, our little cup, and drink to the finished work of Jesus Christ. As we close out here, would you guys all, let's all stand together in the room, outside, at home. Let's stand and, and sing this final song together. What a great way to end this evening, is it not? You know, as I was back there and listening to everyone tonight and reflecting on this, I was thinking, how many other myths do people celebrate every year for thousands of years? There's not very many. In fact, there's none. And here we are, 2,000 years later, celebrating this event that is so hard to believe, yet it is so real and life-changing. It's history-changing, so that people, millions and millions, probably billions tonight, are celebrating and remembering what Jesus did. So, you know, this last year has been a year where we need this message, do we not? And uh, tonight, I was just reminded of how much I need that presence of Jesus and also was so blessed by our fellow Seacoasters who brought this message to us and to me tonight, which reminded me that Jesus doesn't leave me alone. He gives me the church to walk with me in this. And I thank you so much, every single one of you, for bringing the word tonight and doing an awesome job. We're really grateful for you. Well, as we end tonight, um, as you know, we know this is not the end of the story. If the story stopped here, then it's kind of a bummer this weekend. <laughs> but this is just the beginning. And so Sunday morning, we will celebrate the event that confirms that Jesus is who he said he was. And that we can trust what he said is true. And that what he did on that cross was mission accomplished because of Sunday morning. I'm ready to start preaching too. I am, but we'll wait till Sunday. So thanks for being here. Let me pray for you as we go. God, we thank you so much again for the reminder of the great lengths that you would go to demonstrate your great love for your people, often undeserving, could never earn what you've done. Yet because of who you are, you did it and it is finished. We're thankful for that tonight. In your name, amen. Hey, as we leave, feel free to leave in a spirit of reflection. Feel free to say hello to people you haven't seen for a while, and uh, we, we look forward to seeing you Sunday morning. So we'll see you in just a couple days.